the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The quote from uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is, and so shines a good deed in a weary world, and I always think of it on a cloudy day because I've kind of changed it, so shines a good deed on a cloudy day. It's actually from Shakespeare and the Merchant of Venice. And uh, on a cloudy day like today, Hugh Hallman showing up in studio. I've been looking forward to it all day. It is a good deed that you have shown up in this weary world. And dreary day, Hugh Hallman, the former mayor of Tempe, an attorney, uh, educator, and uh, civic um, civic activist. He joins us every Tuesday to discuss and debate the world with us. And uh, it's a delight to have you here, Hugh. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for the honor and privilege. It's uh, given great glow to my day. <laughs> the mo- I've I've been steeped in facts and trivia today on a bunch of fronts, and we're going to talk about some with the audience uh, a little bit. I was talking earlier in the first hour about this general sense. I, I hate that it is this way because I, I want to be an operational optimist. But the more people I talk to and the more I experience, there just does seem to be this general kind of staring down at the shoes amongst Americans, this kind of suck, if you will. And we see it in everything from retail services to the service economy to even the supply chain and 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 customer service and and almost every area of life things seem to have sucked and it's been a thesis of yours th- seems things seem to suck now in a way they didn't used to and it's been a thesis of yours Hugh um uh, probably based on centuries of wisdom philosophy and other intelligence thanks that, for looking at me and suggesting that that's my age no 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 i mean i if i can quote aristotle who's older than you quoting kant we're in good shape because you're older than me so but Based on, on, on centuries of wisdom, probably, but a philosophy you, you t- talk about a lot is that it can take decades to build something. And uh, it can take, you know, a day or a week or a month to destroy it. And it's not so easy to build it back. Um, it's not so easy to flip that switch once you realize the mistake. I mean, even Rudyard Kipling talks about it in his poem, If, about, you know, if you can watch what took you years to make being torn down in a moment. That's kind of what we've done here. It's kind of what we're talking about on several fronts with regard to the economy, with regard to employment, with regard to the story in the Arizona Republic today about school uh, students in schools uh, that just aren't back. Anyway, large setup to anywhere you want to take this. Well, no, I think the the big uh, arc of that lesson is that it does take it can take very short time to destroy what it's taken a very long time to build. And on this show, over the two years of the COVID uh, discussion we were having, we often talked about the fact that in schools in particular, with young people in particular, it takes a long period of time to develop good habits. Mm-hmm. Right. And teaching young people to 
uh, put their nose to the grindstone is very tough, especially when they're com- one is competing against uh, personal uh, communication devices, television, all the other electronic media that students can have their uh, minds turned to. And developing those habits uh, takes time and energy and family participation and support. Uh, I would often counsel parents about the fact that if their students were enrolled in our school, they needed to understand when they first started that the parents would suddenly face children who had never struggled with homework before, in part because they'd never had homework before, and that they would have to develop the habits to undertake homework uh, at home. And that uh, they'll face screaming and crying and pouting and all kinds of behaviors to try to overcome the ob- object of the uh, screaming and crying. And But ultimately, if parents stuck with it, their kids would develop habits that would serve them for the rest of their lives, as long as we all continued to value uh, work and a work ethic. The pandemic undid decades of that kind of work. And we are now seeing that in specifically young men. Uh, The great resignation occurred where people my age and older said, you know what, I'm tired of fighting all of this. I worked really hard. I've saved enough and I will just stop working. But that also infected younger people. And we have for the first time in our history, a huge chunk of the sort of uh, 25 to 54 age males who are now sitting on the couch at home relying on family members and whatever wealth they stacked up during the pandemic. Well, why do I say that they stacked it up during the pandemic? Because our federal government churned out trillions of dollars. And the most damning, in my view, uh, demonstration that that is the case is the recognition that our savings rate increased during the pandemic. When work was shut down. Right. Right. We're we're trying to suggest that uh, savings would be depleted, but savings rates went up, meaning that we were supplying households significantly more money than they needed to survive the pandemic, all on the guise that we were supplying it to help them survive the pandemic. But that saving rates doubled from 2020 to 2021 tells you exactly this point, that we took $2.5 trillion dollars and dumped it into people's bank accounts. Well, that's a lovely thing to do. Wealth redistribution. That's what that's called. And there's a political philosophy that survives on that notion that you take from those that have and give to those that have not. The other way to look at it is, as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. That is Abraham Lincoln talking about the fact that at what point do you have the right to take from one person's earnings and their their sustenance that they've created for themselves and give it to someone else? Now, I'm a rhino, some would yell at me, because I recognize that in our society we have a social contract in which we've all agreed that our government will be created to solve certain kinds of large problems that have free rider and moral hazard issues to them. That is to say that none of us has an incentive to do it alone, but together we do have an incentive. And that incentive, even taught to us by Ronald Reagan, was twofold, that we need a social safety net to provide those who cannot provide for themselves sufficient wherewithal to survive and have a decent life. But he also understood if you pay people too much to be poor, they will continue to be poor. If you pay people enough to be poor, they will be poor. That is to say you supply enough resources to eliminate the incentive to take care of oneself. And my big picture lesson comes from decades of working in Habitat for Humanity projects. 
that was a great object to demonstrate that a hand up is fine. A handout is not. The difference is this, that if you help somebody learn the tools and techniques to take care of themselves and assure that you don't supply enough sucker that they will not take care of themselves, you will help build a human being into their own humanity. But if you provide too much, you will deny that person their very humanity. And that's what we have now done. We, sh we shoveled out $6 trillion, and now we have a whole generation of young men sitting on the couch at home playing their video games and with their iPhones, not doing their job and living off the extra money dumped into bank accounts uh, that was unnecessary. That's clear. And undoing those lessons will take us years, if not decades. Well, this is why you have uh, a, a, an employment problem. We don't have an unemployment problem. We have an employment problem. Unemployment is artificially low right now because we're not counting those 11 million or 12 million working age males. We're not counting them because they're not looking for work. Unemployment only counts those who are looking for work. What Nick Eberstep Headline, headline, headline. Listen to what Seth just said, yeah. that the, the way in which the U.S. government calculates unemployment is if you're looking for work. Right. Well, if you have decided to sit yourself down on the sofa and watch Oprah or whatever the modern version of that is, uh, you're no longer looking for work. So you fall out of the unemployment statistics. So the right statistic for us to be looking at very carefully is the rate of employment, the employment participation rates of especially young males, 25 to 54. The White House is crowing about how low it's driven unemployment. Right. That's irrelevant right. currently. Anybody who goes to a grocery store or to a restaurant or seeks any other kind of service sees the desperation in employers who are trying to keep small businesses alive and they cannot get employees, not because they're underpaid, but because the competition they're against is the U.S. government having funneled trillions of dollars into people's wallets without any effort at all. I think the stat I read by Eberstadt is something like two to three jobs uh, uh, available for every one that is filled. So the next time you drive through McDonald's and you're a little bit surprised to see them offering $15 plus bonus and benefits for, for hamburger flippers and your jaw's on the floor – this is why your jaw should not be on the floor. We can't get people to flip burgers for $15 plus bonus and benefits. Because they're being paid more to sit on the couch. That's, right. That's exactly right. Hugh and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I am Seth. He is Hugh Holman. The Habitat for Humanity, we put a lot on the table. I love all I have to do is say Aristotle, Kant, and Shakespeare, and I'm kind of winding up, Hugh, and you just kind of go, I love it. But um, the Habitat for Humanity uh, example that you raised has an analog with some of the more successful school choice programs, too, doesn't it? If I'm not mistaken, that when at least the last time I looked at this, the more successful school choice pro uh, programs uh, in in both Arizona and in other parts of the country required someone to pony up a portion of it. So when people said, well, $8,000 or whatever the quote-unquote voucher was isn't enough to pay for the tuition. That's exactly right. You want the family to put a little skin in the game so that they have an investment, not only in the education, but in their child doing well with that education. Right? Correct. And yeah. that's certainly, well, let's, let's unpack that whole concept here, um, first with Habitat and then education. So Habitat, um, the model I ran, 
in the East Valley. That's um, an important qualifier, by the way. We don't need to say more about it, yeah. but go ahead. Uh, I'm the not successful sure. model. Yeah, the successful <laughs> yes, model. Yes, there are models that weren't. Yes, uh, and this was a model of volunteer charity. So there are, you know, professional, and I'm using quotation marks in there, there's the air quotes, professional models, which I don't happen to believe work very well. They'll build houses, uh, but they don't do it the way that I think makes improvement in our social society and our and our fabric. And the way our model worked was that every family who sought to have a Habitat house with us had to uh, apply, and they had to come up with a plan on how they would provide 500 hours of work toward their own home. And uh, during the 10 years we uh, were working, and I, I, I had to leave only because I was so busy on my city of Tempe work that I just could not do the job I was doing, and that was ours was an all-volunteer model. We had no paid staff. And the goal was that everybody would be a volunteer in some place, uh, uh, some part of the model. So if a family didn't have the physical abilities, for example, to participate in actually constructing the home, some could do office work or otherwise participate in helping us to run the chapter. The point being is that the family then earned their house, but answered the problem of, does anybody ever wash a rental car? The tragedy of the commons. You do not want somebody receiving a gift like the slums that ultimately got built in Chicago because not having skin in that game precludes a valuation of that asset, that, that gift, uh, that, that will assure its longevity. And I, it's even worse because I wrote all the legal documents then that would sell the house to the family. So once they spent 500 hours, they then had to buy the house. At no interest, over a 20-year life of a loan, and that loan would allow the family, after the first five years, to earn five uh, earn uh, one fifteenth of the equity over the following 15 years. What did that do? It made sure that the family did not use the house as a means of leverage to borrow money for other things, so that the Habitat chapter had a deed of trust and a promissory note. Well, now how do you set the price? Well, our price was running at about two about a third of the actual fair market value of the home. So the family's 500 hours of, of labor was more than paid for in their effort, but it gave them two things, not only skin in the game so they valued that house, but they also learned the skills to take care of it once they got it. So if the tile, tile uh, the towel bar comes off the wall in the bathroom, they knew how to fix the drywall. And they and, gave a damn about it. And gave a damn about right. it. They're not washing a rented car. Correct. And in addition, uh, the, the the object lesson of this was for me, I would sit with the families and go over all the paperwork and explain that, you know, if you don't make the payment, the chapter can, they can actually take your house. It, it would foreclose out your house. During the 10 years I was involved in ultimately 26 houses built, there was a single late payment and that's because the homeowner was in the hospital, and she still got it in a day late. Wow. Uh, and that spoke volumes about the impact this program was having on these families and their children. On the school choice piece, legally, schools cannot require a family to put in cash. They can merely ask and ask that everybody participate. When I was running our schools, I also was cognizant of the fact that there were families that couldn't afford to put in money. So I always had other things that families could participate in so that they were part of that community. And we never touted uh, who was giving money and, and what amounts. It was all about you give what you can. 
But the point was to have skin in that game as well so that the kids and the parents and the families were all invested in that school in a very real way that helped drive family participation and particularly parental participation in their kids' education and understanding of it. Uh, I can only stand by the records that we were often accused of, you know, uh, um, cherry picking kids. The right answer is wrong. Uh, Tempe Prep and its schools uh, had to select students based on lottery. So students and their families would apply and all of those names would go into a computer program system that would then randomly select the students in order. And the students who did not get into the open class spaces were on a waiting list. And during my tenure, we had dozens and dozens and dozens of kids for every single grade who were hoping to get into the school. By the ninth grade, so our school started at sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. By ninth grade, I generally still had people on the waiting list, but also got new kids who had gone to the middle school someplace else and then applied for Tempe Prep as well. That was a reality. We didn't get to cherry pick and couldn't legally cherry pick, didn't want to. My view is our schools were the best schools for probably the 10% to 90% because we didn't have the special programs that really are necessary for kids in great need on the low end of the intellectual ability scale and those at the very top who could get extra programs. Now, we ran many extra programs for lots of kids. But the true proof in that pudding is that Tempe Prep and the prep schools generally, um, by the time I left, we were ranked 15th best in the country by U.S. News and World Report. And the state of Arizona ranked our graduation from colleges and universities as the highest in the state of students graduating within six years of their uh, matriculation into university and college by a couple of percentage points over every other school. That was supported by... And I am blessed to have had great colleagues at the Tempe Union High School District and the Tempe Elementary School District, because arguably I was stealing their kids. They were happy that we existed and could add to the competition in the market that could help them drive improvements in their own schools. And those two, the superintendents of those schools, were crucial to our success. And I think I was helpful to their success as well. I'm glad you landed there because it takes us back to a story I did want to get to about school absenteeism, if you don't mind. So I was I was interested to see in this Arizona Republic story today. We'll pick this up on the other side. I'm guessing your absentee rate at Tempe Prep was something like maybe one percent, maybe, maybe, maybe not even. But I was go ahead. No, it's something we need to talk about when we come back, because that is an example of the lessons that have been learned and unlearned as a result of what we did in covid. Right. And the terrible damage we've done to kids that we really should talk. about. Right. That's where I want to spend the bulk of the rest of the hour with you, Hugh, because people might be interested to know. I'll just give them two stats. Before covid, we had a general 12 percent absenteeism rate in our public schools here in Arizona. Covid shut schools down, reopened. It doubled. It doubled to a 22 to 24 percent absenteeism rate. You can't just flip those switches back on and expect the power and the juice to return to the status quo ante. It matters when you destroy things it took decades to build. Hugh and I will be right back.
Hugh Holman is my guest, educator, attorney, uh, civic activist, uh, any number of great things. Running partner. Gosh, we've been doing some great running together lately, too. And you did a great half marathon over the weekend. Congratulations to you on that. When's your next one? Uh, it is not till the fall. I, I, I'm yeah, arguably I arguing with my bride that uh, the season is closed for. Uh, it just for, opened uh, for me. I know. <laughs> I know. We just, can, we'll still run our ten k. The weather's good for me. It's too hot for you. It's just warm enough for me. So schools. Uh, so we shut down the schools, uh, which before the shutdown had a 12 percent absenteeism rate. We opened them back up. And they shot up to a 24, 22 to 24 percent absenteeism rate. That's a Basically, almost a quarter of our school age or eligible school age children not going back to schools. You combine that, you want to talk mental health, combine that with the mental health problem. We also have to add this new area of interest, which I am glad a few people are beginning to write about, that as much as we are talking about children's mental health deficits, we really got to kind of think about this interesting thing of, well, who's else in the child's life besides the smartphone? And the answer is adults. And we're not talking about the adult mental health problem, but you're raising children with mental health adult adults or mental health um, suffering adults. And that's going to filter down as well. It's not just it's not just the social media and it's not just the other messaging. It's at a time, psychologist Peter Gray writes, it's fascinating to me and it's eminently true. It's at a time a period in which young people have been subjected to ever-increasing amounts of time being supervised, directed, and protected by adults. I was mentioning this yesterday. If you think about it, kids have never spent more time with adults in recent history or memory than they do now. So, of course, they're going to suffer the downwash or backwash from what is going on in their adult communities because they are spending more time with these adults who, as I say, are suffering their own Adults. Well, I would argue that that's actually part of the reason why we have chronic absenteeism in schools yeah. is that parents are now identifying with their children's own psychological uh, dishevelment right. and do not want to feel like they have to send the kid to school when they do not want to go to work themselves. And so now we have increasing. It's not just in schools. We have increasing absenteeism in work. Oh, I'm going to work from home now. Do some people do that very effectively? Certainly. Do some people not do so? Yes. I was in a huge fight with my youngest son about the fact that uh, increasing numbers of employer are using employers are using all kinds of mechanisms to uh, spy on their employees to see if they're actually doing the work. And he was outraged at this. And I said, the challenge you face, son, and I believe this to be quite true, it's not that 90% of people aren't doing their job. It's that 10% aren't. And the there are two aspects to that. Employers got to figure out how to solve that problem. But the piece that is often missed, and this is the part about school-age kids being allowed to stay home by their parents, it's that when there are just a few shirkers within the working environment, the resentments build by those who show up every day and work really hard, and they start saying, why am I doing this? That is the explanation for the great resignation. The people who got out of the workforce because they could they had enough wealth, they were done, were in part leaving the workforce because they were so annoyed, so angry about those people who got to get rewarded at the same level without doing the work. And so now you have the worst outcome. 
you have people who are good employees who have great work ethics leaving the workforce on the high end because they're sick of walking, watching the shirkers get rewarded for doing nothing. And then you have a whole bunch of people who have decided that they're wealthy enough sitting at home on the couch and will live the subsistence lifestyle that they're living rather than go to work because the marginal value is so small to them. And so what ends up happening, I guess, perversely, is that the good folks are gone. The uh, shirkers and, for lack of a better word, the bad folks stay because why wouldn't they? Interesting you use the 90-10%, the 90%-10% contrast. I learned this is a fairly universally true figure, somewhere around 8 to 13% can take down the reputation of almost any institution. You know, we've got to take a break. You know that I like the work of Eric Hanushek at, at Stanford. He's the one that figures out the costs of, you know, the costs of learning loss or the costs of poor teacher quality. That's where he first started doing his dissertation work. And he said, well, you know, most teachers are good and talk teacher quality. We're talking only about 8 to 13 percent of the workforce that's lousy in, in, in the teaching profession. I think it's probably ending up tr- being true in every other profession. He says, but that can take down a whole school. It can take down a whole institution. You can't run a business when 10 percent is lousy. Anyway, we'll pick up on all this when we come right back. Folks, how do you think that the Biden administration is uh, handling the economy? We've got banks failing, stock market volatility, a possible recession coming. If you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed, wouldn't that be of interest? It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. Your interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly. There are no fees. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. And no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that that delivers a high fixed interest rate. I'm talking about my friends at Y Refi. They're local. You can visit with them. I know them well. They're trustworthy, honest. You won't get a sales pitch. They leave that to Larry Elder and me. Y Refi is a due diligence approved firm that you can earn up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. Hugh Holman uh, is my in-studio guest, attorney and uh, educator. And we didn't do much on the international scene, but let's stay with where we are on the domestic scene for a while because, boy, uh, there's a lot to it. There are there are depths to plumb here, especially on what I've been just consumed with, which is the work ethic in America that we shut down in a trice and cannot seem to turn back on. And it's impacted schools significantly. Yeah, right. So students... Uh, not wanting to do the kind of work it will take them to be successful in life. Schools doing their job are to really, in my view, get children prepared for the rest of their life by learning how to manage the world, how to investigate problems, how to solve problems, how to think critically, because once they're out in the real world, that's what they'll be faced with. And so you cannot arm a child with every single answer. What you need to arm the child with is a thinking mind that can ask all the right questions and then the understanding and tools about how to find answers uh, that are appropriate and satisfying. Um, I say satisfying because some things are not uh, zero, one, uh, red, blue. They are they are uh, qualitative issues. And now we have not just that we shut kids out of schools for a year and a half. 
claiming that we were protecting students when we know full well we were protecting adults. The first time in U.S. history where we've used children as the shield uh, and sword to protect adults while pretending that we were protecting children. At least as a non-terrorist society. That's correct. Uh, and and now we have uh, difficulty in recruiting enough teachers into classrooms for the same reason that it's true across the board. You know, I went to a fast food restaurant quite recently, pulled into the drive-thru because, yes, I eat most of my meals handed to me through a window, really? sadly. Oh, uh, and I you know, tried to place an order, and the person came on and said, I'm sorry, uh, we're having a little trouble. Be back to you in just a moment. Minutes went by. I mean, minutes went by. And I said, excuse me. Somebody said, I'm sorry, we're having a little bit of trouble. Uh, we're, we're understaffed. I'll be with you in a minute. And a couple more ones. I sat in my car at that order uh, taking uh, kiosk for six minutes and finally drove away. Yeah. That's how bad it is. And, you know, fast food in quotation marks, six minutes waiting time just to place an order isn't fast food. That is endemic. Uh, systemic. Uh, will uh, Dr. Beal tell us what the right word is I should have used? Um, but the point would be we've now got students who are absent from class and chronically absent for the same reason their parents don't want to go to work. The handling of the pandemic generated so much anxiety and so much distrust of our own governmental system that I think there's a, a, a the Jimmy Carter malaise problem here that, uh, you know, whip inflation now, we'll all get buttons, whip, whip anxiety and depression now uh, as, as the uh, Biden administration's solution to the problems that have been caused by government overreaction. We need to focus on this one thing. We have undone decades of work of creating a work ethic that this society was unique for. When one looks at the number of hours worked by Americans before the pandemic compared to any place else across the world, we're workaholics, relatively speaking, especially when you compare us to Western Europe. That is still the case, but everybody's taken a step down. And our society's wealth has been dependent on the fact that we worked very hard to create that wealth so we would have the resources available to buy all the fun toys that the Democrats want to buy, that you, you get time off at work for pregnancy, you get time off at work for delivery, you get uh, health care, all these other things. I'm not arguing against the benefits that our society has decided to provide. I'm telling you that we have to pay for those. And the way we have always paid for that and afforded the wealth this society has, whether or not you believe it's equally distributed, but the wealth that brought everybody out of poverty, the U.S. poverty that we cry about compared to the rest of the world is ridiculously wealthy. That wealth came about from a work ethic that this society has been built on. The people attracted here who landed on these shores understood they had to take care of themselves and create for their own families. That work ethic continued till about a decade ago, and now it's washed away. We, um, we, 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 we opened the hose on that for that washing. I, I'm of the belief that children are pretty good at sniffing out lies. I'm pretty, good at ch uh, I'm pretty convinced that children are pretty good at knowing when they're being lied to. And a lot of children throughout their lifetimes of K-12 through education will wake up on mornings and say, I don't want to go to school today, or they maybe don't want to go to school for a week, or just don't want to go to school, and the parents' message and the adults' message has been school's important. 
It's important to go to school. It's important to go to school. We have had that drilled into us probably ever since the common school was developed, Hugh, that it's important to go to school. <clears throat> and all of a sudden uh, we said, well, school's not so important after all. Uh, school's not that important. Take 18 months off. Yeah, take 18 months off. It's not that important. And they realized one of us was li- one of those messages was a lie, and a lot of them took that to heart. Now we also have this phenomenon in that working age group that doesn't want to work, uh, roughly twenty five to fifty four years of age, that um, turn out to be um, children in adult bodies. And uh, we told them work was uh, important. It's important to go to work. And then all of a sudden we said, you know what? It's not important to go to work, and we'll pay you not to work. And now we sit here having removed the organ of success, having removed the uh, the mandate of effort and the uh, the operational uh, mechanism that kept things churning, uh, and we, we ground it to a halt and told people, and people were more than willing to buy it and accept it. I mean, not everyone, obviously, not the people in this building or the people you and I work with who do still show up and think these things are important, but enough did. <clears throat> and whether it's 24% of students or 25% of students in schools or whether it's uh, this army of uh, 8 to 12 million eligible working-age males who refuse to go to uh, work these days because the government will pay them not to, and we've told them it's not so important anyway. And, oh, by the way, two million of those are addicted to painkillers to help soothe the anxieties along the way. This is going to be something we are not going to egress from in about a year or two years. This is something I think we are going to have to learn to embrace as part of this new normal we all abhor for quite some time. I'll let you conclude on that when we come right back, if that's cool. I threw a lot at you there. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Hugh Hallman. We'll be right back. Can't believe it's been an hour, but uh, Hugh Holman, thank you for being. I threw a lot at you right there uh, from uh, children that were lied to and discovered the lie and some who played off it and children in adult bodies who discovered the lie and played off it. And we sit around and wonder what happened to the society. Well, society did this to them. It's another example of us being our own worst destroyers. The value of work is something I still believe in. My children would tell you or my bride would tell you that uh, I'm a workaholic. Uh, But part of it is because I enjoy doing what I'm doing. And what I get to do includes all kinds of community work that adds value to my life. So let's not pretend that it is a giving soul necessarily. My soul is happy by the things I'm doing. That work ethic came from my parents who demonstrated a work ethic to me that was value. They both, having made the decision to get married and have children, made a commitment to that project that required that they work diligently. My father, as a school teacher, also was a coach because he not only loved coaching, but it brought in extra money. So most of my life, my father would get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, be at school by 7 o'clock in the morning, and would come back by 6 or 7 o'clock at night. We'd have dinner, and he'd go sit at his desk and grade all of his papers till 10 o'clock at night. That was his school teacher life. That included weekends as well. But during the summers, because teachers didn't make all that much money in the, in the 60s and 70s, he also worked in the farm fields in Blythe. So every summer he would go to Blythe and uh, throw watermelons and cantaloupe. He worked in the farm fields picking watermelon and cantaloupe for those summers in the heat and being a farm laborer. My mother was a stay-at-home mom for much of my life, except that she also had jobs outside of the house to bring in extra money and ultimately became a diesel mechanic and a whole bunch of other things. Those examples are fewer and farther between. 
and it's not being demonstrated currently to a new class of young people who instead are getting the lessons we've talked about through this hour, that it's not all that important to go to school. It's not all that important to work. And reversing those messages is going to take us a great deal of time. And my greatest sadness is this. We have a social um, program before us that says that it is wrong to impress upon people the need to work, Mm -hmm. that we cannot raise issues about somebody who chooses to work from home by sitting on the couch and playing video games, that those life choices are somehow sacrosanct and cannot be ridiculed or subject to ridicule. I'm afraid that we're going to have to change what we're thinking and that the concept that uh, everyone's life choices are acceptable will destroy a society. There are some life choices that lead us to good ends and some life choices that lead us to disaster. And the inability to tell the difference between those two things demonstrates that you may be unworthy of leadership. We have some of those people in Congress, some of them in state governments. We have some of them in local governments. That, ladies and gentlemen, is our object. We must work toward people leading us to good choices and good ends and understanding who doesn't know the difference and should be shut aside and into the ash heap of history. Amen, Hugh. Thank you for that. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Leibson. God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.